whereas philosophy is certainly not self-expression. And philosophy, of course, is argument. Uh, and you can say, well, is the conclusion true or is the argument valid? Welcome to Five Questions, where we don't ask if the conclusion's true or the argument valid, but what they say about you. I'm your host, Kieran Setia. In each episode, I ask a philosopher five questions about themselves. Two ground rules. One is that follow-up questions are allowed. The other is that the question I'm about to ask doesn't count as one of the five. So could you introduce yourself, tell us a bit about who you are and what kind of philosophical work you do? So I'm a Barbara Herman. I teach at UCLA. I work primarily on Kant's moral and political philosophy, probably more recently on a blend of the two. I live in Los Angeles and I have been housebound for three and a half months. Yeah, and by the time this goes out, it may even be longer. We'll see. It, it, the uh, pandemic is still kind of well underway at this point. I'm going to start us off with a question from Iris Murdoch, who is the inspiration for the podcast. She starts each episode telling us that philosophy is not self-expression, but she also wrote, to do philosophy is to explore one's temperament, and yet at the same time to attempt to discover the truth. So would you say your temperament influences your philosophical work, and if so, how? Well, for me, the, the answer to that is pretty straightforward and pretty definitely yes. It has always seemed to me that any of the things that I do, whether it be philosophical or other work, are simultaneously an exploration of whatever it is I'm doing in myself. But probably the relevant bit of temperament is a, a sense of focus on complexity that I begin with the idea sort of an almost anti-analytic idea that, that things are more interesting connected than they are separate. And so I'm very drawn to theories and accounts and questions that demand that kind of integration. So I was very early on interested in psychoanalytic theory as kind of exemplary, as both an account of the origins of things, but also how different strands of personality interact, creating outcomes that are both surprising, but also not completely out of our powers to adjust and change. And so I think that's a kind of paradigm for me of how I think about things. It doesn't surprise me, though it may surprise others, that I began working on Kant's moral theory because I was interested in Kant's thoughts about history. And I've been guided for forever in trying to figure out how those two parts of Kant's mind fit together. Today, just today, finished reading Thomas Piketty's gigantic Capital and Ideology mm -hmm. because um, I was feeling the need for something that tried to fit a hundred different pieces together looking at different models of explanation, in part because I think I want to think more about notions of property as I go on doing my work. And I thought, wow, time to, time to get a lot more history in my head and a lot more competing explanatory models before I go at it. So it sounds like you expect or sort of 
anticipate complexity? Is it something you like? I mean, do you wish things were simpler? <laughs> well, in some ways, yes, because there'd be less work to do. But in most ways, no, because I think they're not. And I'm sort of pretty grounded, realistic sort of person. But also because I find the complexity beautiful, fascinating. The more layers that are required to put things together, the, the more moving parts, the more interesting it is to me. So I, I expect in a certain sense, it's both an aesthetic and an intellectual orientation. I was going to ask you to give an example, maybe I still will, an example of that. It doesn't have to be from your own work, but is there a kind of example of the kind of philosophy that exemplifies the beautiful complexity that you're, you're talking about? Well, probably it would be Hegel if I could understand Hegel, and I can't, so I can't even bring it up. It certainly was that ambition, but probably in the canon, the the thinker that comes to mind who isn't Kant would be Aristotle, Yeah, who I think had the sense, not that you had to talk about everything at once, but that you had to talk about everything because you weren't going to understand the soul if you didn't understand biology and generation and change, and you couldn't understand those unless you had logic and so on. And I think that to me is a very compelling drive. I don't have the bandwidth to to do what Aristotle imagined, but yeah, that would be a figure that I would think of. Probably Spinoza would be another And as I say, Hegel, but I don't understand him. So having focused on one trait that shows up in your attraction to philosophy and the kind of philosophical work that you're interested in, I'm going to ask question two, which is whether there's a trait you wish you had more of as a philosopher. Yes, the opposite one. Okay. So not surprisingly, one goes where one's gifts are. And I think I have fairly compelling synthetic abilities. And I'm not only interested in complexity and problems that have different layers and notions of agency that aren't going to be reducible this way and that, uh, but that I'm good at that. What I lack and what I wish I had much more of is just plain old analytic smarts. I just don't think I'm as quick as I would like to be, never have been. And I'm also very envious and resentful um, towards philosophers who really are enormously sharp and quick, um, a counterexample for every thought that you've ever had. No, I think, I think analytic philosophy has partly had a, a tremendous appeal to me as a check on my own proclivities toward ranging and integrating. And so the discipline of analytic philosophy has been good for me, but it's a discipline. It's not something that comes naturally to me. And as I say, it's not something that I feel that I have the sharpness and smartness about. I remember I was at a, this must be decades ago, I was at a post-talk dinner party in some department, I won't name names, and some very distinguished elder statesman philosophers were sitting around the table and they were having conversations about who among the 20th century most reputable philosophers, all of whom they thought were good, were really smart and which ones weren't. Uh (laughs) It was a kind of intimidating conversation. And uh, as I say, I'm not going to name names, but, you know, people that you might really 
admire, kind of fell on the, yeah, yeah, did good work, but boy, just not that smart. All said by people who were ferociously smart. So on the one hand, it was an extremely intimidating conversation. On the other hand, it was also very heartening in a way for someone like myself, who I would never think of myself as on the smart side of philosophy. You felt, well, at least I could be good, even if I couldn't be smart. It reminds me a little of, there's a Wittgenstein quote in which he says about G.E. Moore that he shows how far one can get in philosophy with no intelligence whatsoever. Which, yes. <laughs> I, I feel like I want to push back against this a bit, or at least I feel like in my own career or sort of ability to make a career or make progress in philosophy has partly involved resisting the kind of philosophical IQ model. So I have a the reverse experience, I suppose, over an after dinner, after a colloquium talk in which a philosopher who I'm also going to leave them nameless, who I thought of as one of those brilliant people who just has an instant perceptive question about absolutely any topic. And I was asking him, you know, uh, you know I was expressing my envy of this ability. And he said, it was just a result of knowing a lot that he he didn't used to have it. And then he read and learned a lot. And now he knows enough so that when people say things, it connects with something else he knows, and then he can he can put two and two together. Now, he may have been just being nice and supportive to an insecure grad student. <laughs> but I was, I was really encouraged by the thought that the ability to ask a quick question in response to anything new might be something that you could sort of arduously learn by just knowing enough philosophy. Do you think of it that way? Or, or is something that's more, more of a kind of gift? I mean, I think what you're describing is a real thing. And I even think about myself over time. You know, I'm a lot better at all of this than I once was and more articulate and more confident. And some of it is I just know a lot. But I think there is another thing. I think Bernard Williams, to name a name, mm -hmm. is someone who had this other thing. To be around him was to be around, you know, a mind that just had a, a different gear. Rogers Albritton was somebody also, I, I think, who was like this. And sometimes there, it was sharp and clever. Um, there's a, there was a, an issue, I think, that has come up in the social history of philosophy of that kind of intelligence that had a slight harsh edge to it sometimes. Mm -hmm. But no, I, I think it's more than just knowing a great deal and, and knowing what the next question is. That there's, it's closer to, to a very high-end kind of cleverness. Yeah, I suppose there is a kind of regress argument lurking that goes back to discussions of innate knowledge that even if it was just about learning, then some people are faster at learning than other people. And yeah. you know, at some point, at some point you, you, you bottom out in the kinds of abilities that people bring to whatever intellectual endeavor they're engaging in. I mean, if I was to ask myself the question about a trait, to some extent, I think just having a much better memory would be extremely useful. I think I forget things. There, I think you can probably train your memory, but some people without any training are just That's right. extraordinarily good at remembering yes. details of arguments from papers they read 15 years ago. I, that yes. would be useful. Yeah. Well, less useful now, thanks to the internet. That's true. Yeah. I mean, I feel as though there is this joy that you get, you get to carry around this external memory. You know, if I can't remember it, then my, the thing that I carry in my pocket remembers it for me. It's it's glorious. That's true. That's really true. So I'm going to ask you a question that changes direction now from your life as a philosopher to alternative lives. So question three is, if you weren't a philosopher, what would you do? 
It's a hard question. <laughs> At my age, I find that's a, a hard question. I can tell you what I thought I was going to do. Sure. And then I can say some things about that. I thought I was going to be a doctor. So I'm a, from a lower middle class family. Neither of my parents went to college. My older brother did. I knew almost nothing about the array of professional worlds that might be open to a person. And so I think I went to college, you know, with things in my head. You, you could be a doctor, a lawyer. And so I did pre-med and all that. And I began, and, and also I, um, I have a very strong practical streak. I like the idea of, of the helping part of doctoring, the hands-on part of it. But I made a decision when I was in college, as I began to find out what post-college education was like, that it would take me too long to become a doctor uh-huh. and that I should do something really, you know, that would get me into the world faster, like becoming an academic. Uh-huh. I'm such an idiot. <laughs> I was just a complete idiot. Uh-huh. Um, I truly didn't know anything. And, and then I think it was just a sequence of accidents. So I would have been a doctor. The other thing I think that might have happened to me, and I, I probably uh, worth saying, is I made an interesting discovery later on in my young life about the connection between talents that you find that you have and choices that you make. So one of the odd talents that it turned out that I had and have is a kind of almost weird virtuosity about being able to run extremely large meetings, hundreds of people. That must be coming in extraordinarily handy in the in the Zoom era, whether it's still <laughs> no, required. It doesn't, <laughs> it, no, it doesn't, doesn't work. work. I don't know. We'll have to see. Um, it has helped in teaching. I can teach very large courses, but I I began to, I discovered that I could run political. It was in, the context was political, uh-huh. and I could really do this. I mean, I could work a meeting. I could get hundreds of people to make better decisions than they were going to make. And I had to think about that because it was something real. Um, I mean, it happened over and over again in different contexts, so I had to believe that it was something that I could do. And it involved both a discovery and a decision that just because you can do something really well, it doesn't mean that you have to do the thing that you can do really well. And there might be things about the thing that you can do really well that strike you as horrible, Uh which actually this did. But it struck me at the time that I had to think, should I be a political organizer? Should I go into the labor movement? You know, there's something that I could do and it had value to other people, but it didn't have any value to me. So I might have been a doctor and I might have been a union organizer, but I didn't become a doctor for foolish reasons. And I think I didn't follow my talent for very good reasons. What struck you as the negative sides of organizing and working in politics? Well, it wasn't the organizing part. It was this particular relationship in the controlling of an environment of a mass of people. Uh It's seductive. It's extremely empowering of me um, doing it. It seemed to me to be very difficult to control you know, how one was going to develop with respect to it. It just seemed very unhealthy. I see. To just have this kind of relationship that you could work a crowd and get a, get people to do things that, you know, it, it didn't fit my picture in my head about how groups should work, which they should be deliberative and careful and thoughtful. 
whereas this was largely about being able to affect a certain mass effect. And that seemed to me not a good thing. Well, let me ask you a question about how you made the transition from being a doctor or wanting to be a doctor to wanting to be a philosopher. Although, well, actually, I'm not sure it is about that. I'm going to ask you a question that might explain that or might not. It's question four is, who was your most inspiring teacher? Well, my most inspiring teacher probably in my adult life was Stanley Cavell when I was a graduate student. But that was after I had made the decision to to do philosophy. Cavell inspired me partly because of what he could do, but also because since there was no topic about human experience, human achievement that was off the table in Cavell's world, it meant that any of the million things that I was interested in could find a way. But probably the more interesting, inspiring teachers was an awkward pair of teachers that I had as an undergraduate. One of them was Alan Bloom. I was at Cornell when Alan Bloom was there. And he was the first powerfully charismatic teacher I had ever encountered, who was both interested in things that I was interested in, you know, philosophical questions about human nature, Plato, blah, blah, and who also offended me in many, many ways. Mm-hmm. And that was both, I was both very attracted to what he was doing because it was so powerful. And also I had no room for that. And, and in the midst of that, in my senior year of college, Hannah Arendt came to Cornell. Wow. And the Bloomian Straussian people had contempt for her. She was a journalist. She wasn't a serious thinker. But she was also, in my world, the first grown-up intellectual woman that I had encountered ever. Mm -hmm. And so I took her courses and got to know her. And that was inspiring. You know, from every, you know, she she wasn't as charismatic as someone like Bloom was, but she was so very thoughtful and very powerful and very available. I mean, she was surprisingly, to me in retrospect, she was someone you could just go talk to. And I did, and I did for years after I graduated. So both her work and her subject matter and her seriousness, and also the range of things that she was interested in and that she was a powerful grown-up woman. What courses did you take with Arendt? I took a political philosophy courses. One was a, a fairly large lecture course on, on most of the themes that play out in human condition. Mm-hmm. And then I took an undergraduate seminar with her on uh, the strengths and limits of democratic politics. She was only there for one semester. She was there as somebody's replacement. She wasn't on the faculty at Cornell, and uh, and then I, I would uh, I sought her out um, in New York on and off over the years after that. She was also someone where I remember the first time I had made an appointment to go see her about something. Uh, it was clear that after she had ha- ever had encounters with students, she would write notes. And so when I met her some years later, after I had graduated from college, she had clearly pulled out a notebook from that earlier period. And I would never do anything like that because it take too much time and effort. But it didn't for her. She was impressive. Yeah, that's really amazing. 
So she remembered you and she remembered your work and you were able to, yeah. to connect. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't think it was because I was exceptionally good. I think she just did that. I don't think I did anything that was exceptionally good. I was just serious. She took it seriously. Wow. Well, she really does sound like an amazing teacher. I would love to ask more questions about Anna Arendt instead, because we have been talking for a while. I'm going to move us on to question five, sure. which is the last Iris Murdoch question. Starts with a quote. It's always a significant question to ask about any philosopher, Murdoch wrote, what is she afraid of? So what are you afraid of? So personally, I'm afraid that, personally, I'm afraid that my work will come to nothing. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I've spent decades thinking about a set of things and, you know, I, it, it, it's come to something, right? I mean, I have a successful career and so on, but that beyond that, it will come to nothing. And I suspect that's just a chronic anxiety that many of us have, and I don't take it very seriously except occasionally. The other personal thing that I'm very afraid of is that I will never get to hug my grandchildren again. Oh, boy. Probably yeah. that's right up there uh, with any other thing that I might be afraid of. But alongside the fear about never hugging my grandchildren is right now it's very hard not to give voice to the fear that we're at some social-slash-historical tipping point, that things are falling apart and we're not sure that we have the institutions or the wherewithal to ride it out and make things better. So I feel frightened um, in, in that sense. So today I find, today in particular today, so two things struck me in ways that connect to this. So I was reading just an hour ago that Dr. Fauci thinks that we may, within the month, hit 100,000 COVID-19 cases a day in the United States. And I don't even know how to think about that. That's terrifying. Yeah. I also, an email came through that the Harvard graduate students just got a union ratified yep. today. And 49 years ago, I was part of a group of people who started to organize the Harvard graduate student union activity. Wow. Which was to refer back to my talents and choices. I mean, that was where I discovered that I could really move groups to you know, go out on strike, for example. And it struck me 49 years. It took 49 years to get that union. And that's both harrowing that it could take so long, but also responsive to the other anxiety. Somehow or other, people hung on for 49 years and kept the movement going. And here today, they won. So a mixture of responses. As a philosopher, I guess I'm thinking pragmatically, how am I? work ought to change in the face of the historical social tipping point that I think that we're at. Not in the sense that I think that I can move mountains, but maybe in the mood that people were in when philosophy and public affairs got started, and which was at another terrible time, when people were extremely agitated and worried, and what could we do? And so it strikes me that this is a good time to be thinking about 
issues of social and racial inequality, notions of desert. One of the questions that one might ask right now is how are ideas of merit are tied causally in both directions to matters of inequality? That our ideas of merit both live off of a background set of social institutions that encode inequality and also are reproductive of inequality. And so it strikes me that there's an interesting question to both think about analytically um, and also to think about, uh, as I think of it, horizontally in terms of these historical and social connections, that we might wonder what I might wonder as a philosopher, what kinds of conditions ought to be in place if institutions like universities are going to be warranted in using notions of merit in making a variety of consequential decisions that have deep effects on the ways we negotiate this strange social historical tipping point. So that's, I'm afraid of something and being a practical sort of person, trying to think, well, what in my limited way could I possibly do that was responsive to the circumstances that frightened me? Doesn't do a thing about hugging my grandkids, though. That's true. But it is good, I think, to end on a kind of moment or tone of hope about the possibility that philosophy can at least grapple with some of the issues that are making this a moment of crisis. And I'm really glad to have had the opportunity to talk to you about that and about the other questions that you've been so generous to take time and answer. Thanks for appearing on the podcast. My pleasure. Nice chatting with you. That was Barbara Herman. She's Griffin Professor of Philosophy and Professor of Law at UCLA. And her books include Moral Literacy and The Practice of Moral Judgment. Thanks for listening to Five Questions. 